Part 7 of Biltmore Oswald, The Diary of a Hapless Recruit by J. Thorne Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Boydell. Part 7 July 1st. This day I almost succeeded in sinking myself for the final count. The fishes around about the environs of City Island were disappointed beyond words when I came up for the fourth time and stayed up. In my delirium I imagined that school had been let out in honour of my reception and that all the pretty little fishes were sticking around in expectant groups cheering loudly at the thought of the conclusion of their meatless days. Fortunately for the Navy, however, I cheated them and saved myself in order to scrub many more hammocks on white clothes, an object to which I seem to have dedicated my life. It all come about, as do most drowning parties, in quite an unexpected manner. For some reason it had been arranged that I should take a swim over at one of the emporiums at City Island, and, as I interposed no objections, I accordingly departed with my faithful Mr. Fogarty tumbling along at my heels. Since Mr. Fogarty involved me in trouble the other day by barking at the jimmy legs, he has endeavoured in all possible ways to make up for his thoughtless irregularity. For instance, he met me this morning with an almost brand new shoe, which in some manner he had managed to pick up in his wanderings. It fits perfectly and if he only succeeds in finding the mate to it, I shall probably not look for the owner. As a further proof of his goodwill, Mr. Fogarty bit, or attempted to bite, a P.O., who spoke to me roughly regarding the picturesque way I was holding my gun. "'Whose dog is that?' demanded the P.O. Silence in the ranks. Mr. Fogarty looked defiantly at him for a moment, and then trotted deliberately over and sat down upon my foot. "'Oh, so he belongs to you,' continued the P.O. in a threatening voice. "'No, sir,' I faltered. "'You see, it isn't that way at all. "'I belong to Mr. Fogarty.' "'Who in... who in... who is Mr. Fogarty?' shouted the P.O. "'And how in... how in... how did he happen to get into the conversation?' "'Why, this is Mr. Fogarty,' I replied. "'This dog here, sitting on my foot.' "'Oh, is that so?' jeered the P.O., a man noted for his quick retorts. Well, you take your silly-looking dog away from here and secure him in some safe place. He ain't no fit associate for our camp dogs, and furthermore, he added, the next time Mr. Fogarty attempts to bite me, I'm going to put you on report. Savvy? Mr. Fogarty is almost as much of a comfort in camp as mother. Well, that's another something else again, and has nothing to do with my swim and approximate drowning at City Island. Swimming has always been one of my strong points, and I have taken in the past no little pride in my appearance, not only in bathing outfit, but also in the water. However, the suit they provided me with on this occasion did not show me up in a very alluring light. It was quite large, and evidently built according to a model of the early Victorian era. I was swathed in yards of cloth, much in the same manner as is a very young child. It delighted Mr. Fogarty, who expressed his admiration by attaching himself to the lower half of my attire 
and remaining there until I had waded through several colonies of barnacles far out into the bay. Bidding farewell to Mr. Fogerty at this point, I gave myself over to the joy of the moment and went wallowing along, giving a surprising imitation of the famous Australian crawl. Far in the distance I sighted an island to which I decided to swim. This was a very poor decision indeed, because long before I had reached the spot, I was in a sinking condition owing to the great heaviness of my suit and a tremendous slacking down of lung power. It was too late to retreat to the shore. The island was the nearest point, and that wasn't near. On I gasped, my mind teeming with cheerless thoughts of the ocean's bed waiting to receive me. Just as I was about to shake hands with myself for the last time, I cleared the water from my eyes and discovered that the island, though still distant, was not altogether impossible. Therewith I discarded the top part of my suit and struck out once more. The island was now almost within my grasp. Life seemed to be not so much a lost cause after all. Then suddenly, quite clearly, just as I was about to pull myself up on the shore, I saw a woman standing on the bank, and heard her shouting in a very conversational voice, "'Private property! Private property!' I sank. This was too much. As I came up for the first count, and just before I sank back beneath the blue, I had time to hear her repeat, "'Private property! Please keep off!' I went down very quickly this time, and very far. When I arose, I saw, as though in a dream, another woman standing by the first one, and seemingly arguing with her. "'He's drowning!' she said. "'I'm sure I can't help that,' the other one answered, and then in a loud, imperious voice, "'Private property, no visitors allowed!' The water closed over my head, and stilled her hateful voice. "'No,' she was saying as I came up for the third time, "'I can't do it. If I make an exception of one, I must make an exception of all.' Although I hated to be rude about it, having always disliked forcing myself upon people, I decided on my fourth trip down that unless I wanted to be a dead sailor, I had better be taking steps. It was almost too late. There wasn't enough wind left in me to fatten a small-sized bubble. "'There he is again!' she cried in a petulant voice as I once more appeared. "'Why doesn't he go away?' "'He's just about to, for good!' said the other lady. With a pitiful yap, I struck out feebly in the general direction of the shore. It wouldn't work. My arms refused to move. Then quite suddenly and deliriously, I felt two soft, cooled arms enfold me, and my head sank back on a delicately unholstered shoulder. Somehow it reminded me of the old days. "'Home, James,' I murmured, as I was slowly towed to shore. Just before closing my eyes, I caught a fleeting glimpse of a young lady clad in one of the one-piecest one-piece bathing suits I had ever seen. She was bending over me sympathetically. "'Private property!' cried my tormentor, shaking a finger at me. What a pity, I thought, as I closed my eyes and drifted off into sweet dreams in which Mr. Fogerty, my beautiful rescuer, and myself were dancing hand in hand on the parade ground to the music of the massed band, much to the edification of the entire station assembled in review formation. Presently, I walked to the hateful strains of this old hard shell's voice. 
"'See what you've done,' she was saying to the young girl. "'You've brought in a half-naked man, "'and now he has seen you in a much worse condition than he is. "'We'll have ten thousand sailors swimming out to this island "'in one continuous swarm.' "'Oh, won't that be fun?' cried the girl. "'And from that time on, in spite of the objections of her mother, "'we were fast friends.' When I returned to shore, it was in a rowboat with this fair young creature. The faithful Fogarty was waiting on the beach for me, where, it later developed, he had been sleeping quite comfortably on an unknown woman's high-powered sports hat, as is only reasonable. July 2nd. Mother got in again. There seems to be no practical way of keeping her out. This time she came breezing in with a friend from East Aurora, a large elderly woman of about 110 summers and an equal number of very hard winters. The first thing mother said was to the effect that she was going to see what she could do about getting me a rating. She did. The very first officer she saw she sailed up to and buttonholed much to my horror. Why can't my boy Oswald have a pretty little eagle on his arm, such as I see so many of the young men up here wearing about the camp? The abruptness of this question left the officer momentarily stunned. But I will say for him that he rallied quickly and returned a remarkably diplomatic reply to the effect that the pretty little eagle, although pleasing to gaze upon, was not primarily intended to be so much of a decoration as means of identification, and that certain small qualifications were required as a rule before one was permitted to wear one of the emblems in question. Qualification, he hastened to add, which he had not the slightest doubt that I failed to possess if I was the true son of my mother, but which, owing to fate and circumstances, I had probably been unable to exercise. Whereupon he bid her a very courteous good day, returned my salute, and passed on. But not before the very old lady accompanying my mother saluted also, raising her hand to her funny bit of a bonnet with unnecessary snappiness and snickering in a senile manner. This last episode upset me completely, but the old lady was irrepressible. From that time on, she punctuated her progress through the camp with exaggerated salutes to all the officers she encountered on the way. This, of course, was quite a startling and undignified performance for one of her years, very embarrassing to me, as well as mystifying to the officers, who hardly knew whether to hurl me into the brig as a vicarious atonement, or to rebuke the flighty old creature on the grounds of undue levity. Most of them passed by, however, with averted eyes and a discountenanced expression, feeling, I am sure, that I had put her up to it. Mother thought it quite amusing, and enjoyed my discomfiture hugely. Then, for no particular reason, she began to garnish her conversation with inappropriate seagoing expressions such as Pipe down, hit the deck, avast, and hello, buddy. Where she ever picked up all this nonsense, I am at a loss to discover, but she continued to pull it to the bitter end. Hello, buddy, was the way she greeted the jimmy legs of my barracks after I had introduced her to him with much elaboration. This completely floored the poor lad, and rendered him inarticulate. He thinks now that I come from either a family of thugs or maniacs, probably the latter. I succeeded in shaking the old thing for a while, 
and when I found her she was demonstrating the proper method of washing whites to a group of sailors assembled in the washroom of one of our most popular latrines. She was heading in the direction of the shower baths when I finally rounded her up. She was a game old lady. I'll have to hand her that. Her wildest escapade was reserved for the end of her visit, when I took her over to the K and C hut, and she challenged any sailor present to a game of pool for a quarter of all. When we told her that the sailors in the navy never gambled, she said that she was completely off the service, and that she thought it was high time that we learned to do something useful instead of singing sentimental songs and weaving ourselves into intricate figures. This remark forced us to it, and much against our wills we proceeded to show the old lady up at pool. She had been bluffing all along, and when it came to a showdown we found that she couldn't shoot for shucks. When the news spread around the hut, the sailors crowded about her, thick as thieves, challenging her to play. She was a wild, unregenerate old lady, but she was by no means an easy mark, as it later developed when she matched them for the winnings, got it all back, and I am told by some sailors that she even left the hut a little ahead of the game. I don't object to notoriety, but there are numerous ways of winning it that are objectionable, and this old lady was one. Mother must have been giddier in her youth than I ever imagined. July 3rd Yesterday I lost my dog Fogarty and didn't find him until late in the afternoon. He was up in front of the 1st Regiment, mustered in with the Liberty Party. When he discovered my presence, he looked coldly at me, as if he had never seen me before, so I knew that he had a date. He just sat there and shook his bangs over his eyes and tried to appear as if he were somewhere else. When the order came to shove off, he joined the party and trotted off without even looking back, and that was the last I saw of him until this morning, when he came drifting in, rather unsteadily, and regarded me with a shifty but insulting eye. I am rapidly discovering hitherto unsuspected depths of depravity in Mr. Fogarty, which leads me to believe that he is almost human. July 4th This has been the doggonest 4th of July I ever spent, and as a result I am in much trouble. All day long I have been grooming myself to look spick and span at the review held in honour of the secretary when he opened the new wing to the camp. I missed it. I lost completely something in the neighbourhood of ten thousand men. It seems hard to do, but the fact, the ghastly fact, remains that I did it. When I dashed out of the barracks with my newly washed, splendid sea-going, still damp white hat in my hand, my company was gone and the whole camp seemed deserted. Far in the distance I heard the music of the band. Fogarty looked inquiringly at me, and I fled. He fled after me. Fogarty, I gasped. This is a trick I have to pull off alone. You're not in this review, and for God's sake act reasonable. I couldn't bear the thought of chasing across the parade ground with that simple-looking dog bounding along at my heels. My remark had no effect. Fogarty merely threw himself into high, and together we sped in the direction of the music. It was too late. Thousands of men were swinging past in review, and in all that mass of humanity there was one small vacant space that I was supposed to fill. 
I crouched down behind a tree and observed the scene through stricken eyes. How could I possibly have managed to lose nearly ten thousand men? It seemed incredible, and I realized that I alone could have accomplished such a feat. And I had been so nice and clean, too, and I had worked so hard to be all of those things. I bowed my head in misery, and Mr. Fogerty, God bless his dissolute soul, crept up to me and tried to tell me it was all right, and didn't much matter anyway. I looked down and discovered that my snow-white hat was all muddy. Fogerty sat on it. July 8th As a result of my being scratched out of the Independence Day Review, I have been tried out as punishment in all sorts of disagreeable positions, all of which I have filled with an inefficiency only equaled by the bad temper of my overlords. Some of these tasks, one in particular, was of such a ridiculous nature that I refused to enter it into my diary for an unfeeling posterity to jeer at. I am willing to state, however, that the accomplishments of Hercules, that redoubtable handyman of mythology, were trifling in comparison with mine. To begin with, the coal pile is altogether too large and my back is altogether too refined. There should be individual coal piles provided for temperamental sailors. Small, colourful, appetisingly shaped mounds of nice, clean, glistening chunks of coal they should be and the coal itself could easily be made much lighter, approaching, if possible, the weight of feathers. This would be a task any reasonably inclined sailor would attack with relish, particularly if his efforts were attended by the strains of some good snappy jazz. However, reality wears a graver face, and a suttier one. Long did I labour, and valiantly, but to little effect. More coal fell off my shovel than remained on it, this was due to the unfortunate fact that coal dust seems to affect me most unpleasantly, much in the same manner as daisies or goldenrod affect hay fever sufferers. The result was that every time I had my shovel poised in readiness to hurl its burden into space, a monolithic sneeze overpowered me, shook me to the keel, and all the coal that I had trapped with so much patience and cunning fell miserably around my feet, from whence it had lately risen. Little things like this become most discouraging when strung out for a great period of time. In this manner I sneezed and sweated through the course of a sweltering afternoon. And just as I was about to call it a day, along comes an evilly inclined coal wagon and dumps practically in my lap one hundred times more coal than I had disturbed in the entire course of my labours. On top of this, Fogerty, who had been loafing around all day with his tongue out, disporting himself on the coal pile like a dog in the first snow, started a landslide somewhere above and came bearing down on me in a cloud of dust. I found myself buried beneath the delighted Fogerty and a couple of tons of coal, from which I emerged unbeamingly, but not before Mr. Fogerty had addressed his tongue to my blackened face as an expression of high good humour. Take me to the brig, I said, walking over to the P.O. I'm through. You can put a service flag on that coal pile for me. What's consuming you, buddy? asked the P.O. in a not unkindly voice. Take me to the brig, I repeated. It's too much. Here I've been working diligently all day to reduce the size of this huge mass, when up comes that old wagon and humps its back and belches forth its horrid contents all over the place. 
It's ridiculous. I surrender my shovel. God, breathed the P.O., looking at me pityingly. We don't want to go and reduce that coal pile. We want to enlarge it. Oh, I replied, stunned. I didn't quite understand. I thought you wanted to make it smaller. So I've been trying to shovel it away all afternoon. You should not have done that, replied the P.O., as if he were talking to an idiot. I suppose you've been shoveling a downhill all day. I admitted that I had. You see, I added engagingly, I began with trying to shovel her uphill, but the old stuff kept on rolling down on me, so I drew the natural conclusion that I'd better shovel her downhill. It seemed more reasonable and... Easier, suggested the P.O. Yes, I agreed. There was a faraway expression in his eyes when he next spoke. I'd recommend you for an ineptitude discharge, he said, if it wasn't for the fact that I have more consideration for the civilian population. I'd gladly put you in the brig for life if I could feel sure that you wouldn't injure it in some way. The only thing left for me to do is to make you promise that you'll keep away from our coal pile and swear never to lay violent hands on it again. You'll spoil it. I gazed up at the monumental mass of coal rearing itself like a dark town matterhorn above my head and swore fervently never to molest it again. Go back to your outfit and get washed and tell your P.O. for me that you can't come here no more. And, he added, as I was about to depart, take that unusual-looking bit of animal life with you. It's all wrong. Police his body or he'll ruin some of your pal's white pants, and they wouldn't like that at all. I feared they wouldn't. Yes, sir, I replied in a crumpled voice. Much obliged, sir. Please go away now, he said quietly, or I think I might do you an injury. He was fingering the shovel nervously as he spoke. Thus Fogarty and I departed, banished even from our dusky St. Helena. July 9th Working on the theory of opposites, I was next placed as a waiter in the chief petty officer's mess over in the 1st Regiment. I wasn't so good here, it seems. There was something wrong with my technique. The coal pile had ruined me for delicate work. I continually kept mistaking the plate in my hand for a shovel, a mistake which led to disastrous results. I will say this for the chief, however. They were as clean-cut, hard-eating a body of men as I have ever met. It was a pleasure to feed them, particularly so in the case of one chief, a venerable gentleman, who seemed both by his bearing and the number of stripes on his sleeve to be the dean of the mess. He ate quietly, composedly, and to the point, and after I had spilled a couple of plates of rations on several of the other chaps' laps, he suggested that I call it a day and be withdrawn in favour of one whose services to his country were not so invaluable as mine. Appreciating his delicacy, I withdrew, but only to be sent out on another job that defies description. Even here I quickly demonstrated my unfitness and have consequently been incorporated once more into the body of the regiment. End of Part 7